0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Midtown. This is our sermon series I AM, examining the I AM statements of Jesus. Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is John 6:25 through 40 and 47 through 48. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, "'Rabbi, when did you get here?' Jesus answered, "'Truly I tell you, "'you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, "'but because you ate the loaves and were filled. "'Don't work for the food that perishes, "'but for the food that lasts for eternal life, "'which the Son of Man will give you, "'because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. "'What can we do to perform the works of God?' they asked. "'Jesus replied, "'This is the work of God, "'that you believe in the one who has sent.'" who he has sent. What sign then are you going to do that we may see and believe you?" they asked. "What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat." Jesus said to them, "Truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of the, of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world." Then they said, "Sir, Give us this bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on that last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Because my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as a living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your ancestors ate, and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: morning, Sojourn Midtown. Peace be with you. Let's pray. God, you are so good. As you speak to us through your word this morning, may we taste and see that you are good. May we believe that there is no good life apart from you. May we believe that you are good offer us something far more satisfying and rich than anything this world has to offer. Lord, help me to make much of you this morning. To name we pray. Amen. Well, my name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Midtown. It's a pleasure to see you all here on Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there and happy Juneteenth as well. I thought as I was considering as I got this passage, John six, and it lands on this day. What better way to honor the dads in this room than to share a couple of my kids' favorite dad jokes. So stick with me. Here we go. First one, what's the scariest wood? Bamboo. (laughs) It's good, right? Come on. All right. Number two, try this again. How do you get straight A's? With a ruler, of course. Come on. All right. So, I want to honor those dads out there. You could take one of those or use one of your own at lunch, maybe this afternoon. Uh, weave that into the conversation. I'm sure your kids are going to appreciate that. So, my family and I, we lived in France for about eight years. And as I thought about this topic of Jesus as the I am, the the bread of life, I couldn't help but think back to our time in France. I know I get to, as I preach and teach, I get to share a lot about France. It comes up a lot. It's a big part of our lives, but it's really right this Sunday because we're talking about bread, and the French know what bread is all about. They love bread. They love bread more than you can even imagine. I promise you. So we moved into Lyon, France, our neighborhood of croix Uh, We literally had a boulangerie on almost every corner. I'm not kidding you. That is not an exaggeration. So there was good bread everywhere, bakeries everywhere. You'd see people on their bikes with a backpack and a baguette stuffed in their backpack riding home for dinner, right? They'd be tearing it off, taking a little bite. That's like their snack food. They don't eat food outside of a restaurant other than they'll grab a baguette and hit it on the run. So when I say that we've had good bread, I am not exaggerating. And as you can imagine, if you're in a culture for a while, that culture rubs off on you. And so my family and I, we grew to love good bread. In fact, we've gotten a little bit snooty about it. It's hard now, you know, in the States, there's a lot of like wonder bread out there, right? It's not the same thing that I'm talking about. So when I talk about good bread from France, I know what I mean. We're not talking about wonder bread. But when we moved to our neighborhood, as I said, in Coirouz, We were fortunate enough in our first apartment to be like two streets away from one of the best boulangeries in the whole city. When I'm talking the best, I mean like incredible. People would be around the corner, kind of like Nords, but you know, times 10. So crazy because people wanted this guy's bread. We got to know the boulangerie, the boulanger, as they call it, the baker. He was making good bread. He actually would invite us over to his house and we had him over to our house. You can imagine uh, having a really good baker into your house. You're fixing food for a guy who's like famous all over the- France. That's kind of a, a little bit uh, anxiety, brings a little bit of anxiety to bear. But um, this guy, we live so close, so I'll get bread all the time. A couple years into our time in France, our daughter Cora was born and our apartment was really small. It wasn't big enough to have three kids in. So we moved to the other side of the neighborhood. And one of the things we were saddest about was that we were no longer two streets away from this amazing bread and this amazing boulangerie, but we were in all the way. So I was willing to at seven in the morning before there were crazy lines, I'd go over there on Saturday morning or another day of the week if we needed bread. And I would literally pass five other bakeries, five other boulangeries on my way to get back to this place called Partizan, which was the best bread. So, I was willing to do a lot to go get good bread in our neighborhood. I was convinced this was the best. But as we see in John 6, this crowd who had a miracle, they saw Jesus perform a miracle of turning some loaves of bread and some fish into enough food to feed 5,000 families. So, this crowd, they heard about that, they saw what Jesus did, they got their bellies filled. And we see in this passage that they were willing to cross a lake, a big lake, the Sea of Galilee, to go find Jesus and get their bellies filled again. So even though I've had really good bread, I've never done something quite that crazy. Getting on a boat to go find the boulanger, the baker. So the the reality is, though, this crowd was searching for Jesus for the wrong reasons. They wanted their bellies filled they wanted the material more than the spiritual. And they, as we will see as this passage unfolds for us over and over again, they're missing the whole point of who Jesus is. They want their bellies filled and they want provision instead of the person of Christ. But the reality is it's not just the crowd who approaches Jesus this way with that sort of posture. We do the same thing all the time our motivations for Jesus are often twisted and jacked up because again, we come to Jesus, not just for his provision. We want his provision and we miss the person. We want what he has to give us on our own terms. And we miss out on the all satisfying nature of who Christ is. Anytime we claw and we grasp for Jesus's provision, without his person and work, we don't get the provision we actually need. Jesus' provision is always meant to point us to Jesus himself, the person of Jesus, not just what he gives us. So as we think about how to, how to think about bread and Jesus as the bread of life, I hope you hear this, that even if you're kind of living the gluten-free life, you know, a lot of you might be out there, that we're going to talk a lot about bread this morning, But this message has something for you, something for each of us. Here's a question for you to help frame what we think about today. What are you hungering and thirsting for? What are you hungering and thirsting for this morning? What do you think is going to bring you true satisfaction? So as we heard the past two weeks, Pastor Jamal and Pastor PJ launched us into this summer series on the I am statements of Jesus. The centrality, the beauty of these I am statements is that we get to hear from Jesus in his own words, declaring who he is. It's beautiful. All these statements, there's so much richness that we're going to unpack this summer. In John's gospel, the whole point of John's gospel, John 20, 31, what does he say? But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So every one of these I am statements that we hear throughout this series are going to be for that purpose. John is laying this stuff out here so we can see Jesus in his own words, understanding who he is and believing in him as the Messiah. As you heard already, we we heard a lot of this chapter 6 read for us in the scripture reading. So we're going to follow John's lead this morning in kind of three big movements as we try to unpack and really sit in this beautiful idea of Jesus as the bread of life. So as we think about this, there's three points. And here's the big idea. Believe and abide in Jesus as the bread of life, and you will experience eternal, all-satisfying life. Believe and abide in Jesus as the bread of life and you will experience eternal, all satisfying life. So here's the three points. There's a sign at the beginning of the chapter and then Jesus takes the bulk of chapter six to unpack what that sign is all about and the significance of it. And then finally, we see at the end of the chapter, the response. There's always a response when we are confronted with who Jesus says he is. So let's look at the first part. Of the chapter, the sign in verses 1 through 15. John 6 marks this really pivotal moment in the ministry, the public ministry of Jesus. It's kind of a watershed moment in Jesus' life. So before John 6, he's doing all this stuff. He's he's turning water into wine. That'll make you pretty popular. He's he's healing sick people over and over again because he's starting to do things publicly and things are growing. So he's really popular. But in John six, we see everything kind of turn. He goes from being popular to being hated. The crowds, as we will see, grow more and more angry and frustrated because they don't get it. They don't see Jesus for who he really is. So we see this watershed moment in John six. And in this sign, John uses that terminology sign over and over again. There's a bunch of signs in John. What he's saying is these miracles. There's miracles taking place over and over again. So Jesus sees he's on a mountainside. That's the the image, the place where they're at in in the beginning of John 6. He sees this huge crowd spread out before him. And in verse 10, it says, the men numbered about 5,000. So when we see that, we see 5,000. What really John is telling us is there's a lot more than 5,000 people. It's probably 5,000 families. And so maybe 15,000 people. That's a lot of people. Jesus performed this miracle for a lot of people, a huge, huge crowd. And when, as if you grew up in the church like I have, maybe you learned this story through flanograph. Uh, some of you may remember what that was like. If you don't know you, those who are digital natives, you can Google that. But, uh, yeah, it's easy to pass. Let this miracle or sign pass us by without realizing just how magnificent and incredible what Jesus did for these people is he provided bread from a few loaves and a few fish for 15,000 people, probably. And not only did he provide, there were leftovers. There was so much provision taking place that there were leftovers. So the crowd liked this, right? They got their bellies filled and so they wanted more. And so they were looking to Jesus. They called him a prophet. They were really excited and they decided the next best course of action was to grab Jesus and force him to be king. But what do we see in these last few verses here in 14 and 15? The crowd got filled. They grabbed Jesus. They're ready to make him king. And Jesus is like, nope, my time has not yet come. It's not, we're not ready for this. My time, he is doing the will of his father. Because the reality is Jesus is no mere political figure. He's no mere earthly king. He's the king of all the cosmos. And so what's taking place here is that he's saying, nope, it's not my time. We got to wait. And so he goes and hides himself on the mountainside. And the crowd doesn't know where he went. He disappears. The whole point of those first 15 verses, when Jesus is doing this miraculous stuff for this crowd, is to set up the rest of the chapter, the rest of what happens. Jesus unpacks for us the significance of that sign that he does at the first part of chapter 6. So as we look at John 6, 22 through 58, let's dive into this this rich idea of Jesus as the bread of life. Jesus kind of, there's three parts to this second movement here. So first of all, provision leads to the person. Then believing in the bread of life leads to eternal life. And finally, feeding on the bread of life leads to abiding eternally. So that's the significance that we're gonna unpack here. So again, the crowd realizes that Jesus has given them the slip. He's run away. He's hidden himself. They don't know where he's gone. So as I mentioned earlier, they got on a boat. They got on a bunch of boats. They crossed the sea in order to find Jesus because they'd had their bellies filled and they wanted more. And when you consider the reality of the Old Testament, these ancient people, it makes sense, right? They were in a remote place. It wasn't like they could just go bake some bread really quickly on the side of a mountain, right? There was no Chick-fil-A that they could swing by real quick and get some nuggets. That just wasn't a reality for them. And so they knew somebody had provided for them in an abundant way, in a way that they could never imagine before. And so they were ready to go get bread. But the, the issue with bread, much like for the French culture, ancient people, bread was life. It was the core of their diet. It was essential to everything. So As we unpack later, when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, that has like huge, huge significance. It's not just like Wonder Bread we're talking about. That's not who Jesus is saying he is. He is the essential, all satisfying life. That's what he's talking about. And we'll see that in a second. But the reality is, as we think about the crowd and their motivations, they were seeking Jesus for the wrong reasons. They wanted their bellies filled. Let's look at 25 through 27. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, you were looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. So in verse 25, you see, The the crowd, they're calling Jesus Rabbi, right? Rabbi was a term of honor and respect. So at this point, they still think they're gonna get something out of Jesus. So they are showing Jesus a lot of respect. They're like, Rabbi, tell us what's going on. Where did you come from? You disappeared and now you're here again. And Jesus understands this right away. They're coming at him for the wrong motives, they don't understand what's really going on. What does it say in verse 27? Don't work for the food that perishes but for the food that lasts for eternal life. As we said already, this crowd, they want Jesus, but on their own terms. They want us provision without the person. And what Jesus is starting to develop here for us, and it grows and grows and grows throughout this passage is the reality that the hunger that we try to fill ourselves with never delivers. It never delivers on the desires we want because we're always looking for the material and not the all satisfying spiritual reality of Jesus, the Messiah, as our bread of life. So he tells them, look for food that lasts for eternal life. When he's saying this, food that doesn't spoil, right? This idea goes back to the Old Testament. What happened with the Old Testament in, in the manna and God's provision with Moses and the wilderness with the Israelites? They only could collect enough manna for one day. If they kept it longer than that, what happened? It went bad. They couldn't eat it. They'd get sick. So what is the implication for us? What was Jesus doing here? He was pulling from the Old Testament. What happened with those implications? You had to find your satisfaction in God's provision for you every day. So the implication is don't think manna is going to save you. Don't depend on just the physical to provide your salvation. The message from Jesus is to feed on him every day. It's not the provision of the manna that's going to save you. It's Jesus himself. It's me, as he's saying. Jesus wants us to understand that primarily working to meet our physical needs, he's not primarily working to meet our physical needs, even though that's important. We need stuff to live. What is more fundamental than all of that is that he wants to satisfy us with spiritual food that lasts forever that never spoils. But the crowd still doesn't get it, right? Look in verse 28. They ask a second question of Jesus. So they ask the first one, Rabbi, still respecting Jesus, but it's starting to build. What can we do to perform the works of God? What does this show us? They assume there's some way to perform their way to pleasing God, to earn their salvation. See how formulaic it is? If I do this thing, I should get this result, right? That's the way it works. Christian life is about a formula, right? And it betrays the crowd's motivation. They believe performance is what Jesus is talking about. But that's not just about them, right? That's not their posture, just their posture alone towards Jesus. It's our own. We go to Jesus all the time because we believe our performance is going to earn our acceptance and salvation. That is what's going to satisfy. We believe our salvation relies on us. That that may not be what we say, but that's how we live often. So Jesus corrects him again. He says, this is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent. Believe in me. Jesus is saying a life that is pleasing to God is not built on your performance. It is built on believing in me. But that sort of reality is so counter cultural, so counter to what we believe because we believe we can perform. We believe in this performance based, formulaic way of living and relating to Jesus. And it shapes and infects all sorts of things that we do on a regular basis. We work our fingers to the bone because we believe this formula works. We believe hey, if I work 50 or 60 hours a week, I'm going to get promoted. And then guess what? Jesus is going to be pleased because I can take care of my family then, right? We can go on the vacations we want. We can have the cars we want. We can have the house we want. We can have the life we want. But what does that reveal about our motivations? We think, again, if we do this thing, it's going to get this result and Jesus is going to be happy with us. But it's not true. And how do I know this is not true? When we fail as fathers it reveals a whole lot about our motivations and about why our posture towards Jesus. When we succeed, we don't need anything, right? When we have everything we need physically in this world, it's really hard to see our need for Jesus. But it's when we fail to perform up to our own expectations or our wives or our kids' expectations that it really reveals how we're relating to Jesus what we really believe in, what we think truly is going to satisfy. Let me give you an example from my own life, right? Take a minute just to confess. Something the Lord has been working on through the power of the Spirit and the kindness of my wife is my tone with my kids. You know what? I love when my kids obey. I love when they obey not just obedience at some point, but like right now, right away. Right? We all like that, right? We like when people do what we say, when we say. But what gets hard, right? What gets revealed often in my tone when it changes? The minute that I've had to say something for like the fifth time in a day on a Saturday morning, when I just want peace, when I want comfort, I want to chill, it reveals what happens, right? I go from this patient, loving father to a drill sergeant in a heartbeat. I start my tone and my posture towards my kids changes really quickly. I go from kind, loving dad to demanding dad. And what is it all about? I want control. I want peace in my house. I want order in my house. But guess what? That's failing my kids, right? Because I'm not reflecting Jesus to them in that sort of tone and posture and way of interacting with my kids when they don't do what I want, when I want them to do it. And what does that lead to? What what happens after that? When we fail as fathers, when we don't perform like we want to, when we don't live up to our own expectations or our wives or our kids' expectations, instead of repenting and asking for forgiveness, instead of resting in Christ's perfect work for us, where he is taking care of that tone. He has bought and paid for my sinful responses to my kids. But instead of resting and abiding in that reality, what do I do? I'm like, Oh, I can fix this. I'm going to perform my way to being a good dad. But the reality is no books I'm going to read. No, how many times, not, no, I can't even talk. Not how many times I coach my kids sports teams not how many conferences I'm going to go to are ever going to allow me to somehow perform my way into a life that looks like a satisfying life, a life that ab- leads to abiding with Christ. And what do my kids really need to see? Not some performance-oriented relationship with Jesus as they see their father. What they really need to see is their father faithfully trusting Jesus and relying on him for his salvation, for his life, So even when we're insufficient as fathers, we serve a father who is all-sufficient. He loves our children far more than any of us do. Even our best, even in our best, most glorious moments, they don't compare to what Jesus offers us, the all-satisfying life that is available with him as we see him as the bread of life. So let's return to verse 30 and 31. What happens here? We see the crowd. They weren't having it. They still don't get it. They don't see Jesus for who he is. And their irritation is really starting to show. They're angry. They're like, okay, Jesus, you are telling us attaining eternal life isn't about our performance. We don't believe you. So prove it. Prove that you are who you say you are. Prove it. Do a sign like we saw with our ancestors in the wilderness with Moses and Mana. Think about that. This crowd who had crossed the Sea of Galilee to go find Jesus to get their bellies filled again, didn't believe Jesus. They had seen him do this incredible, miraculous sign. And yet they became incredibly antagonistic, hateful, angry at Jesus. Because guess what? life wasn't happening on their own terms. Jesus was calling them to a different way of life. Jesus is saying, Moses didn't give you real spiritual bread. My father did. Bread from heaven is not a thing. It's a person. It's me. I am the bread from heaven. And I give life and meaning to everything. Jesus gets more and more direct and explicit as he continues in chapter 6. We see in verse 35, what does it say? Believing in the bread of life leads to eternal life. That's what this section is all about. John 6, 35 says, I am the bread of life. Jesus told them, no one comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. I'm the bread of life. In the Greek There's this emphatic statement that Jesus is making, almost to the point as his hearers would have heard him, it was like he was yelling at them. There's this repetition that takes place. Ego, eimi. And what that means is, I am, I am. He's saying it again and again. And this way of talking was super rare. I am, I am the bread of life. So when they heard that, they would have like been on their heels. Like, Jesus, whoa, what are you doing? Because what he's telling them It's the same thing that we heard last week from Exodus 3. What's going on? He's saying, I am. I was there in Exodus 3. I am the bread of life. Don't miss it. The force of what Jesus is declaring leaves no room for doubt about his meaning. Again, he's saying, I was there in Exodus 3. I am the miracle. I am the sign. I am eternal life. Without me, you will starve. So if you don't hear anything else this morning, listen to this. Stop longing for what can't satisfy you. Stop. No job, no promotion, no vacation, no acceptance from anyone in your life, no relationship is ever going to bring the satisfaction you really need and that you really deep down desire. The only satisfaction that you are going to find in this life is found in Jesus. So we're going to jump forward, but basically 36 through 52 in this passage, there's a lot more back and forth. Jesus and the crowd going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, because the crowd just doesn't get it. And so Jesus keeps building. He's getting more and more and more provocative. He's saying shocking, shocking things to them. And we're going to see what he, what he does exactly in a second. I would love to spend more time unpacking this, but we don't have enough time this morning because it's a big passage. So let's jump in to the next section. Feeding on the bread of life leads to abiding eternally. This is where Jesus gets shocking, even more so. Eating flesh and drinking blood. This is what leads to true, eternal, all satisfying life. Look at John 6, 51 through 55. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give his flesh to you? It has echoes of, of John 3 and Nicodemus. How do I get born again? Right? So Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoa. So if we think about Jesus as turning up the volume on a stereo, he went to 11, right? Max. This crowd would have been shocked. What is Jesus talking about? You can't eat flesh and drink blood. The Old Testament strictly prohibited something like that. That was way, way off limits. We can't do that, Jesus. What are you talking about? But Jesus knew what he was doing. His his being provocative had a point. He was pointing to himself. He was using this sort of language to prove the point of what this is all about. Even today, though, these verses are hard, right, to read something like this. Eat my flesh? Drink my blood? What? So as I was studying this passage, I came across this quote from a theologian, and I thought it really helped me make this concrete. So I want to read this and share it with you. To eat of this bread means to appropriate Christ as one's life. It is a figure of belief, for no one will eat what he cannot trust to be edible. To eat a meal implies that it is wholesome, nourishing, and real. I love that. That's what Jesus is talking about here. We can trust him. Jesus is the only trustworthy person to feed on every day. He is what is most true and beautiful and good about this life. When we believe Jesus is the bread of life in this way, it changes what is true. It changes what is our most real concrete reality. And this is where we find life that satisfies us. Satisfies us in a way that nothing else can or ever will. Jesus used again, as he builds on this argument, as he's going back and forth with the crowd. He says this phrase, remaining in me. And What he means is abiding or this idea of communion with God. This is where we arrive in verses 56 and 57. Eating his flesh and drinking his blood leads to remaining in him. Read with me. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. So again, Jesus uses this provocative imagery to help us understand the radical nature of what he's saying and what he's doing. He's comparing the life that we have, the access to the sort of life we have with the same life that Jesus shares, that beautiful idea of communion between father, son, and Holy spirit. It's a beautiful truth and it's hard to access. It's hard to understand, but that is the monumental reality. When we believe in Jesus as the bread of life, and we learn to abide and remain in him, we get that access, that same access that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have. That beautiful communion. And that's the invitation from Jesus today. Believe and abide in me. Because I am the bread of life. And as you do that, you will access life that is truly life, eternal, all satisfying life. So we reach the end of the passage, John 6, 60 through 69. And we see this beautiful response. Because the reality, when we confront the declarations of who Jesus is, these I am statements, we might wrestle with it for a while, but all humanity comes to the same two points. Either belief or unbelief. That's the end. Belief or unbelief. Fundamentally, that's all there is as we look to Jesus and get to decide, do we believe who Jesus says he is or is it too hard and we don't believe? Look at verse 60. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? So if you're present this morning, maybe this is one of the first times you've ever heard a message like this. Some provocative language Jesus is talking about. Feed me on me. Drink my blood. That sounds kind of crazy to you maybe. I can get that. That's pretty wild. But what I want you to hear this morning is that believing in Jesus as the bread of life leads to something far greater than you have ever experienced in your entire life. That reality of feeding on Jesus, relying on him, giving yourself to Jesus, leads to life that is truly life. So if you want to talk to somebody about this, if you want to take a next step, if you have questions, there'll be pastors and staff in the Connect Room after this service. We would love to talk to you more about it. We'd love to answer any questions if we can, and we would love to share in more detail what it looks like to experience life that Jesus is describing in John 6. Again, this idea, believing is hard, These are hard truths. But when we believe, we get to abide. And when the more we abide, the more it becomes easier to believe. They work in tandem. Believing leads to abiding, leads to more believing at a greater and greater depth. And then it leads to more abiding. We get the richness to taste and see that the Lord is good. So the reality, though, is we see in verse 37, belief Is given to us by God. That's how we can believe. Because our posture, our natural state towards God is one of like the crowd, antagonism and anger. Because we don't like what what God has to say, what Jesus has to say to us in these I am statements. Look at verse 37. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone, everyone who sees the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. The beautiful aspect of this, though, is that what we experience here what we will experience in the future is available to us here and now. We get to taste and see that the Lord is good in this life. We don't have to wait till the end. And that comes through believing and abiding. So there's two applications for you this morning as you think about what am I supposed to do with all this stuff that Jesus is telling me? Got one habit for you to develop. And then one question for you to ask on a regular basis. So here's the habit. Memorize God's word. That's an easy one, right? You've heard that probably a lot of times if you've been a Christian for a while. Memorize God's word. But what's the reality? Memorizing God's word leads to accessing Christ in a real way throughout the day. Because what happens? If you're anything like me, maybe you've grown to love to read God's word in the morning, right? You have a regular time with the Lord. You meet with the Lord in the morning. It's this beautiful thing. In my life, I've seen that happen where I'm praying over a a portion of scripture, maybe Psalm 34, and there's this beautiful aspect to what Christ is revealing about himself. I'm convicted of sin and I want to change and I want to see the things that I heard from God through his word applied to my life. But fast forward, right, a few hours later, I've had like three meetings. And in that time, I've added another 10 emails and 10 messages that I need to reply to. This probably sounds familiar to some of you, right? You get to the middle of the day and you've forgotten everything you heard from the Lord in the morning. That's, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's the invitation. That's what it looks like to feed on Jesus throughout the day. And one of the ways that you can be helped in that is by memorizing God's word. Take and feed on God's word. But it's easy just to say that. I want to give you actual, actually some concrete ways that you can do that. So a few months ago, um, one of my friends who's a pastor encouraged me. He, he really sets the pace for me in helping me understand how to memorize God's word on a regular basis. And he was like, hey, man, I know this is hard for you uh, to do on a regular basis with consistency. Here's a way that might help you. And it's called the five by five by five method. Okay. Super simple. Five by five by five. Take five minutes each morning, set a five minute timer and spend the entire five minutes memorizing some piece of scripture. Super simple. It takes an idea, a desire, and makes it real. Take five minutes. Maybe you put on a focus on your iPhone or whatever, so that way you can focus. You can have a special one for scripture memorization maybe, but turn everything off. Open God's word, set a timer, and spend five minutes reading God's word over and over. The second five, with your Bible open, whatever piece of scripture you've chosen, maybe a verse or a passage, read it out loud five times. That's the second thing. That's the second five. The third five, close your Bible. Say it again as best you can. Whatever piece of, whatever piece of scripture you've taken, a, a verse or a passage, and try to repeat it with your Bible closed five times. That's it, five by five by five. We all have five minutes in our day to stop, to rest in God's word. Because when we do that, when things get hard, during our days, when we get a phone call, an unexpected phone call, or an angry boss shows up at our door, or our kids, again, don't obey for the 10th time. That's an invitation from Jesus to abide in him and to apply his word to our lives. That's what brings life and transformation. So that's the practice or habit that you can apply what you heard today through. Here's the second thing. It's a question it's going to help reveal how you'll know if you're abiding in Christ on a daily basis. Here it is. What am I hungering or thirsting for today? What am I hungering or thirsting for today? Because the answer to that question reveals everything you need to know. Whether you are abiding and feeding on Jesus. Whether Jesus is what is who truly satisfies we have a hunger and thirst that is only ever satisfied with Christ as the bread of life. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Soldier in Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit SojournChurch.com slash Midtown.